You're listening to the Thinker What Works podcast. I'm your host, Jason Todd, with my co-host, Alex Gary, and today, John Phelps from RLDC. We're talking practical ways to obtain funding for small businesses. John, I met you, uh, I think, at beer time uh, in an afternoon at a local uh, brewery. And it was a great time, uh, I think we shook hands and then we talked after that and been friends since then. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank uh, you, Jason. Talk to us about RLDC. It's a good introduction. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, RLDC, what is what is RLDC? What do you guys do? What do you stand for? Well, first of all, uh, that local establishment we financed and my dedication to my job is I frequently go there to check inventory. So that's... <laughs> that is noble of you. <laughs> I, thank you. I've, I've checked the inventory as well. I think you're doing well. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Rockford Local Development Corporation. Let, let me give you a little history, first of all, and maybe put it in context, and, and then we'll describe what we do primarily. But during the uh, deep recession in the early 1980s, Rockford led the nation in unemployment, uh, mayor McNamara, the, the first Mayor McNamara, uh, was looking for solutions and put together a task force that went around the country and tried to find best practices in other communities. And they came back and they formed what, what I call a triad of for economic development. There was the city's community development department that handled bil- bid, bid, uh, building permits and, and other you know nuts and bolts kind of stuff. Then he formed the Council of 100, which was the marketing organization to try and bring new industry to town, and the Rockford Local Development Corporation. And the Rockford Local Development Corporation's first task was to develop an industrial park. Sunstrand, at that time, was being courted to build a data center down in the southeast and went to the mayor and said, you know, we have communities going to give us land. What will you do for us? And so the mayor and the city council came together. They bought about 100 acres down by the airport. Now it's called the Greater Rockford Industrial Park. And they needed a developer for the park. And so they brought in Sanders House from Hartford, Connecticut. He had experience in this area. And the very first thing that they did was start to develop this industrial park. And that park is fully developed today and includes uh, Rockford Toolcraft, Cardinal Glass, Greenlee, uh, the the big uh, pharmaceutical company. I can't remember their, their name are some of the tenants down there today. But shortly thereafter, they they decided that having uh, loan programs to help small businesses would help uh, foster and, and, and expand the small business community. So they went out and they got an EDA grant, Economic Development Administration, a matching grant for some city money to start a revolving loan fund. A revolving loan fund is we lend the money to a small business, they pay it back, and we lend it back out to somebody else. And they applied to become a lender through the U.S. Small Business Administration in a program called the 504, which is a very specialized program that permits us to go to Wall Street, issue bonds on behalf of our small businesses, and then lend them the money from those bond proceeds. So essentially, we're a conduit for these small companies to access Wall Street funding uh, under very attractive terms that they cannot get conventionally. So it, in, in summary, that's, that's really our primary task is we provide capital to small businesses. Uh, we, we, have, we manage uh, currently about a $70 million loan portfolio, uh, about over 300 loans. Uh, we now manage uh, half dozen revolving loan funds, uh, one for the city of Rockford. We have two of our own, one for the county of Winnebago, one for Stevenson County. 
And uh, we have a multi-bank community development corporation that makes loans in Winnebago and Boone County. So wow. we, so um, and so we manage about five million dollars of local funds in addition to our SBA portfolio. Wow. So what types of businesses, uh, if characterize the types of businesses that are in these revolving loans? We um we, we put a we, we have a real priority for manufacturing. Uh, we we believe in economic base theory, which says that as a manufacturer. You're selling products around the nation, around the world. You're bringing dollars back to the community to support jobs. Those jobs historically have paid better than service jobs. That's not, it's not always the case, but, but historically that is the case. There, there's probably a greater multiplier because they tend to buy other products locally that go into their products. And, and so that's our priority, probably about 40 percent or more of our portfolio is to manufacturing, whereas 20% of our employment is in manufacturing. So we, we certainly have a concentration there. And we've been very active in the downtown area. We have 14 loans uh, to businesses between Taco Betty and Irish Rose. So, and we started doing that back when Medicine Man moved into their building at 510 East State Street about 2000, uh, when Paul Sletton bought... Um, Brio back about uh, shortly thereafter. So we've been at it for a long time, really before it was popular at a time when my board of directors thought we were candidly nuts, you know, that nobody was downtown and what are you going to do when these businesses fail? And uh, surprise, maybe not surprisingly, fortunately, um, almost all those businesses are still successful today. Yeah. So you kind of followed maybe the process of when everybody else is fearful, it's time to be greedy and well, you know, I, 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 that's probably fair, except for I think it's more of um, we go against the market. So if if the product project is really good, it's a successful medical practice going to be on Perryville, the banks are all over it and they've got all the money. So they're going to take care of those conventionally. When you're in a market that's more distressed, and property values are lower, so you've got valuation problems. They don't appraise out. You know, you buy a building downtown for two hundred thousand, and you put a hundred thousand into it. It's probably still a two hundred thousand dollar building. Right. So that's really where the need is great, greatest for what we call gap financing. Okay. It's our role to supplement what the bank's willing to do, not supplant the bank. So if we can get a bank to lend eighty percent, we're willing to do ten percent or twenty percent. But there's sometimes when a bank might only do 50% and we have to do 50% to, to finish, you know, fulfill that gap between what the bank's requiring from the borrower and what they have available to put into the project. Right. What do you look for when somebody comes to you with a project or a deal? Because we were having a conversation with somebody downtown a few weeks ago and you kind of spelled that out. But, I mean, when you go to get that funding, you know, what are the criteria you need to see to, to pursue it? Well, I mean, I think from a lender standpoint in general, there's there's three factors you look for, every lender looks for. And the first is the ability to repay the loan. So if it's an existing business, you're going to analyze their financial statements, their tax returns. You're going to go through a cash flow analysis. What's, what's their historic ability to generate uh, cash flow from existing operations to support this expansion? And if they pass that test, I mean, that's, that's pretty rock solid because the presumption is that the new activity is going to be accretive to earnings and it's going to help increase cash flow and, and it'll be a, a stronger company. Um, 
if if that company is is a new company or if this is a major expansion where they don't have that historic cash flow, you're going to look at projections. You're going to analyze those, test them, stress them, and and try and determine is is management do they have the capacity to pull this off in your best opinion? And and that, that that's you know that's a grayer area because it, it's untested and and you're relying on. Uh, projections that that hopefully will come true and they'll be able to produce. So cash flow is is probably the most important criteria, whether it's historic or or projected. Then after if you pass that test, then the lender is going to look at what's the secondary source of repayment. If you fail and you can't pay us back, how are we going to get our money back? And most uh, you know conventional lenders are asset based in the sense that they're lending a per- certain percentage off of the assets they're financing. So if they're financing a building, maybe they'll go to 80% or 75%. Again, that's with the understanding they're already comfortable with the cash flow analysis. Lenders aren't, they don't just lend on assets with the thought that they're going to sell these and recover their loans. Right. Um, and if it's equipment, depending on the type of equipment, it might be 50%, it might be 70%. Um, if it's working capital assets, things like accounts receivable, maybe they'll go to 80%, but not to any accounts over 90 days. Not if, if there's a large concentration, if you have one customer, they're probably not going to go 80% because now they're underwriting that other business. If they're financing inventory, they might go 50% on finished goods or raw material. They won't go anything against work in process. So they've, they've started off saying, okay, we think you can pay us back. But because of the type of assets we're financing, um, we're only going to lend a certain amount. And that's where the gaps come in. That's why they call us and they'll say, well, we've gone through our collateral analysis and we can only lend 300. The company needs 400. Would you help us out? And so that's usually when we get called in. Um, the third test is, is a character test. And, and the easy, easiest way to look at it is they'll pull a credit bureau on you and and make sure you've paid your bills, you haven't filed bankruptcy, you don't have any judgments against you, things like that. But today, in particular, if they're larger loans, it's so easy to do background checks on people. Uh, Do you have a prior arrest? Um, What's out there on the internet on you? Um, And and they'll do that kind of analysis just to make sure you're of sound character. Um, But, but, you know, but getting back to this notion of collateral, you know, one of the big gaps that we have in this community is if somebody comes in with, I've got this great prototype that I've developed, but now I need to uh, make uh, inventory, I got to market it, and I'm going to need about $500,000. Well, the lenders aren't going to touch that sort of thing because there really is no collateral. You haven't sold any, and if you can't sell it, they're not going to be able to sell it. Uh, lenders are terrible at selling assets. So those kind of projects are very difficult to finance with debt, and that's usually equity. Now, we've had some exceptions where somebody's come in and said, you know, for $30,000, I can test this, I can, I can reach a, a, a small market and demonstrate that, that it's commercially viable. Uh, they're good people, good credit uh, records. Um, maybe they have some other assets that they can pledge. And we might take a a leap with somebody like that to get them started with the hope that it's successful and we can get them bankable, that the product will, will test out and, um, and they'll, they'll need additional funding down the road, but we've helped them establish that market for that product. 
Uh, we don't do a lot of those because we can't afford to lose a lot of money either. But but occasionally we'll find one that's very promising and we'll we'll take a, a leap on somebody like that. So how do you assess for someone who who has a new product? They've got a new opportunity. They're opening up something, maybe some new market. Uh, how do you assess whether whether you would step into that space and and provide some sort of financing until they're bankable? Yeah, you is know, it some of it, some of it is gut yeah. for sure, because on those kind of situations, oftentimes, you know, lenders tend to be generalists. Their our, our knowledge isn't always real deep, and so we don't understand sometimes even what they're doing, and and so you're relying. You know, I, I am one who bets on the jockey, not the horse. Right. So you look for somebody who's really bright, who's got a drive, who refuses to fail. And, and oftentimes you can read that. You just you can see it. You spend enough time with them, and and you get that sense that this is the kind of person who's going to be successful. And, and if not on this particular product, on the next one, and if they're of good character, they'll usually honor their debt. It may be a long time before you get paid, but sure. but they'll honor it because they know it's important for their future to to show that they are of strong character. What percentage of your uh, opportunities through time have have been some of these where you've kind of bet on the jockey not the horse and kind of gone on a limb well you know we we have i have a interesting story and it gets back to alex when he he was asking earlier you know tell me a story about somebody that you helped that really made it big that yeah kind of surprised you and i had a, a guy walk in i was alone in the office i'm busy i don't want to be distracted this guy comes in he's a big guy he's got a bald head and I need to see John Phelps. And I, I almost lied to him, I almost said he's not here because I was busy. <laughs> right. And But then I thought, he's so big that if he finds out the truth, <laughs> I'm in trouble, you know. So so I sat down with him and he told me that he'd gone to the bank, started his business. And I don't want to get too specific yeah. because I don't want to reveal anything. Sure. But, um, he said, I went to the bank. The bank made me a loan. I bought all my equipment. Uh, it was the kind of business where it had to operate two shifts and around, or basically around the clock. And um, so he hired his people, fully staffed up. And he comes in, and he says, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to meet first payroll. Oh, boy. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. And I said, I, you know, I got to hear this story. And he was impressive. He knew his industry, had a lot of experience. And I said, well, how'd you get in this mess? I mean, what, why did the bank, you know, how much did they lend you? And he told me. And and I said, what was the basis for the loan? You you spent it all on your equipment and your leasehold improvements and things like that. And he said, well, they they looked at the value of my home and they gave me a home equity loan. Mm. And I thought, that's it? That's all they did? <laughs> I mean, they give you enough rope to hang yourself? And right. so we sat down with him. We did some projections. I showed him, you know, based on his model. And, and what they, he really hadn't factored in was the payment cycle. He's right. not going to get paid right away. And, and so we've... Went through the projections, figure it all out, and and but I was really impressed with him. And I said, I'll make you a small loan to get you through payroll, but we're we got to get to a lender that's an SBA lender, and we got to get you an SBA loan. And so we did that, and he, and he got his SBA loan, and he had some rocky times over the first couple of years, but after that they took off. They ended up uh, in a ten year period in four different states, over 500 employees. Wow! Sold the business. I have no idea. We were already paid off by the time he sold the business, but. I can only believe he sold it for millions. And yeah. and here was a guy who came in and wasn't sure he was going to make it through the first couple of weeks of starting. And so a, a great story. And But there again, there there was the jockey, the guy who had this passion, uh, knowledge, um, and, and was going to make it work, come hell or high water. Yeah. And, and he did. 
Amazing. Have there been any deals? Well, I'm sure there have been after all, all these years. Has there been any uh, deals where you felt really good about it? You signed and like, this is solid. I can't even believe a bank didn't do this 100%. And then it didn't work out. And why didn't it work out? Well, we, you know, we've had quite a, a number of those. You know, I, um, they were all good deals when we made them. So, you know, somebody else screwed up down the road after and it failed. But, <laughs> but you know, before the uh, last recession um, in, in 2008, uh, I was going through some old records. And we did that year, I think we did 90 loans. And we, we lent close to $80 million, which is huge for us. And what was, I think the common feature there was that people were willing to take on a lot of debt and lenders were willing to provide it because it was a boom period. Everybody felt so good about the economy. And um, so companies were very highly levered. And then the recession was so severe that manufacturers in town were at 40% of their prior year sales. And and, and you can only you can lay off a number of people and you can try and, and reduce your overhead, but that debt doesn't go away. And and on top of it, lenders became so scared that they lost patience. You know, um, many lenders would just pull the plug right away. And, and it was first one out, get paid, get recover as much as you can. And and so there was a, a hysteria, I think, at that time and lack of patience that hopefully we never see a situation like that again. So so we got burned on a few at that time. And one company in particular had made a, a big expansion. It was the minnow swallowing the whale. Uh, business was going well in the summer of 2008. And, and, and without my knowledge, and not that they had to notify me, but I didn't know anything about it. They had gone to the bank, had brought in, they were bringing in a new product from China, uh, going to reshore it here. Uh, took on a huge obligation of a lease space, took on a bunch of debt. And, and in their mind, it, it wasn't, I mean, they're just rolling the dice. It's not their money anymore. They're playing with house money. And so they borrowed all this additional debt and the economy just blew up in September of that year. Their market just collapsed and they were out of business by Christmas time. Oh, man. And we lost, we lost probably a million and a half. The bank had to lose five million. Easy. I remember. I forget the name of the business now, and I don't think we could publish it. When I, I used to work for the newspaper, and that's how I got to know John. And I remember you telling me the behind-the-scenes story of one where there was something like, I'm guessing here, 11 or 12 different entities involved, and all of them had signed off to, to keep this business running except for one bank. One bank said, nope. They wanted their money, and it, that blew the whole thing up and put them under. Well, yeah, and actually, you're right. And that particular business owner thought that um, they were more secure by having multiple bank relationships because one bank couldn't kill them uh, you know, uh, and didn't control them. So they had their payroll at where they had the smallest loan. That's basically where they ran their checking account. And that bank swept the account and uh, they could not meet payroll. And they, it, the situation was dire anyways, but all the other banks are right. SBA, we got everybody to agree to forbear and try and work through this. Uh, but the one bank swept the account and the owners closed the doors. Um, it, you know, in retrospect, I'm not sure they would have made it because it was such a severe recession and it, and, and, and it lasted a fairly long time period. But at the time it was pretty unfortunate for sure. I 
in, in 2006, I, one of my favorite projects, I did a thing called Small Business Survivors. I went and found all this old SBA data, and I, and I went through all these lists and, and called everybody in, in, to figure out um, survival rates, yeah. right? And so I did you know 12 stories, one each month. I did some, and I had a, another writer do another. And um, then in 2010, I went back and looked at those 12 businesses, and nine of the 12 had failed. And these are really? companies, some oh. of them had lasted 15, 20 years, but they just could not they survive. They couldn't get through that. Yeah. yeah. So that must have been hard on you. After all these years, all these deals you did, I mean, a lot of these companies that were going out of business probably were friends of yours. Oh, absolutely. Um, you, you develop a real bond, and particularly for us as a subordinate lender, because when we go into a deal, we're, we're just like the bank. You're at the opposite sides of the table, and you're signing documents, and, you know, by God, you got to pay us back, that sort of thing. But when they get in trouble, we're their friend because if they go out of business, we're not getting paid. Right. You know, there's not going to be any collateral left for a subordinate lender. So totally. we we become their advocate, and we're doing everything we can to try and keep them alive. And you really do. You It, it is a siege mentality. You, you, you bond. You try and get through it. And when it's not successful, I have literally had companies pay us when they weren't paying the bank because they felt an obligation to us, and the bank was this – you know, no face uh, institution that, you know, contributed to their problems in some way. And you know, people rationalize a lot when they're in trouble, yeah. but, but they feel an obligation oftentimes to us because of that extra service, because we're there with them to the very end. And, and they, they just, they, f- they feel an obligation. How has, what is the funding cycle now or the lending, uh, what's the term for it? Um, What's different today than 2007? Are we back to the easy money kind of system, or, or were there some permanent changes? It, oh, there's, there's some permanent changes for sure. I think um, across the spectrum, uh, lenders are more cautious than they were. Now, it's getting looser, f- certainly, and, and in particularly in this market, because Rockford's arguably overbanked, and so it's a very competitive banking industry and they're sitting on money they got to get it out so credit standards do start to loosen but i mean you know before 2008 you could get 100 percent financing if you worked it right um that would be very difficult to pull off today uh, one of the big uh changes we've seen with sba um is in in the old days there was a greater um, and, and I'll probably get in trouble if they ever hear this, but um, there was a greater um, interest in economic and community development. So, you know, if you had a loan in a low-income area and it was a minority female business owner uh, with a decent plan, I mean, it, it, there was a, a effort to try and make that loan work. Today, it is creditworthiness, and it doesn't matter if you check all the boxes, you know, and... Um, for public policy, all the things that we're supposed to be doing, uh, at the end of the day, if if it's not creditworthy, it's not going to get approved, and and that's really a direct result of the recession. Um, SBA was under a lot of heat through Congress and OMB and and others that uh, their their credit standards were loose and and a lot of money was lost. And we had a couple of years our, our program SBA 504 is a zero subsidy program, which means taxpayers don't pay for any losses in the program. It's charged to the borrowers. And, and so it's a great program in that sense, because communities benefit, companies benefit, banks benefit, everybody benefits. It's a real win-win for everybody. Um, 
And, and it actually generated money for the Treasury for many years. But for a few years there after the recession, we were not zero subsidy. Uh, Congress had to appropriate money to support the program. I think one year it was like $150 million, which in the government world is a drop in the bucket. But, but nonetheless, it created this perception that this program was a subsidy for businesses and, and led to a lot of uh, conflict, consternation in Congress about supporting the program. And, and we're now back to zero subsidy, but partly the, uh, the, the you know, consequence of that is uh, much stricter lending standards um, and loan volumes as a result have never really returned to pre-recession levels. For the people who are listening who don't understand the terms 504 and, and 7, um, 7A. 7A, what's the difference between the two? Okay, a 7A loan is a, a bank, uh, banks make 7A loans and they've got a deal. Let's say you want to open up a restaurant and um, they like your experience, they think it's going to be great, but they've looked at it and restaurants have high failure rates. There really isn't enough collateral to support the loan. So what they'll do is they'll say, okay, I'll make the loan, but we've got to go through SBA and SBA will guarantee 75% of that loan. Sometimes 85% of it's a small loan, but generally 75%. So the bank can only lose 25% of whatever the shortfall is, as, as long as they do everything properly and they they don't screw it up. Um, um, so it's a, it's a program that helps banks make loans they otherwise wouldn't make. 504 is different. 504 is a, a direct loan that we make to the borrower. And so the typical structure is if you're buying a building, the bank is 50% on a first mortgage, we're 40% on a second mortgage. And, and we fund that loan by going to Wall Street and we issue a bond. And those bonds are guaranteed by the US Small Business Administration. So you're borrowing on Wall Street with a credit rating of a U.S. agency, and as a result, you're borrowing this on this probably as low as Pepsi would borrow if it went to the bond market. You know, th these are subordinate bonds, second mortgages, with a 20-year fixed interest rate today of four and a half percent. So very competitive pricing, uh, very attractive terms, and now the borrower can get to 90 percent. You know, earlier I said if you bought real estate. You're probably at 80%, maybe 75%, but we can get them up to 90. And that's probably the primary reason people come to us. They only have to put 10% down. So that helps create projects that otherwise wouldn't get done. Because if you're building a million dollar building, you only have to come up with 100,000, not 200,000. And small businesses don't sit on that kind of cash generally. That's hard to come up with. And, and so without our program, there would simply be just less projects. On top of it, we fixed the rate for 20 years on our portion, and our rates are oftentimes less than the bank rate, even though we're at more risk and have longer-term funds in the deal. And I forget, that's just buildings? What if it's, it's not equipment? We can go equipment. The equipment has to have a useful life of 10 years. So in a market like Rockford, we do a lot of equipment financing, uh, presses, uh, CNC equipment, uh, you know, welding equipment, things like that. Uh, we couldn't do computer stations. We, we could do it as part of an incidental. You're buying a, an office building. It's a million-dollar building. You need 30000 for equipment, we, or computer equipment. Then we can do it. But, but if you were uh, like maybe uh, one of those data centers and it's just all servers and you know, HVAC equipment and stuff like that and you're leasing the space, uh, we probably wouldn't be able to do that because that equipment is likely going to be outdated in a few years 
and wouldn't meet that 10-year useful life criteria. I'm, you know, as you know, I'm I'm kind of a data nut, and we were talking about this, about this before we started recording. I would love to someday go through all the deals uh, and figure out, you know, which ones worked, which ones didn't, like a you know a, a failure rate. Have you guys ever looked at those and, and and tried to do that kind of calculation internally, and then try to you know say why did that one work, why did that one fail? We really don't have the staff or the time to, to do that kind of diagnostics, uh, but certainly mentally, you, you never forget the bad deals. Um, and so you look for common traits, and, and it's not just us, but the bankers, and I have some very good bankers on my board that we bounce ideas off of, and, and everybody has a story about a similar situation they recall, and, and they give you helpful t- hints of what to look for, what not to do, you know, things like that. Um, but you know, we really haven't ever broke it down in a systematic way to say, you know, that these were the mistakes and we should never do these again. Um, that having been said, our portfolio, we don't have a lot of hotels. Uh, we don't have a lot of C-stores. Um, and partly because when those go bad, they go really bad. And, and there is no collateral protection um, for those kind of properties, generally speaking, when when, when they fail and uh, they're so specialized and it's, it's so competitive um, that I kind of stay away from those. Unless there's a special story with it, you know, something unique about it. It's a C-store on the interstate uh, where there isn't one and there's lots of traffic and trucks and things like that or a, a hotel that's in a tourist area. We did one down in Nauvoo one time, which is the home of the Mormons before they went to Utah and they built a temple there. And, and the Mormons have to return to Nauvoo periodically for, um, you know, I, I forget what they call it, but they bring their families. And they, this was an extended state property right next to Joseph Smith's homestead. Uh, the guarantors were all strong. There were elders in the church. It, it was just a unique story, a unique opportunity. It worked out well for us. And, and so that's when we did. But, but you know, uh, a, a hotel without a flag that is in a very competitive market, that's a tough business. You know, the story thing that's interesting because we talk a lot about to our clients that you need a good story. And you're talking a lot about, you know, there's there's a lot of hard numbers involved. But in the end, can can a story sway you? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and we, we talked about it earlier when we talked about um, bet on the jockey and not necessarily the horse. And absolutely stories are important and um you got to check them out and it's always there's comfort in numbers and uh whether whether it's historic or uh, some competitive advantage that they have that uh, we're working with an existing company now that um uh, makes a product for costco walgreens or not walgreens uh, walmart kroger and there's only three of them in the country, and they're the only one in the Midwest. And w- one of the three, the largest, decided to go into co-packing. And co-packing is really where, how you get to the big, uh, you know, one's a food processor, the other does the co-packing, and the co-packing puts it all in the packages and ships out to everybody. Well, this one that's in the co-packing business, uh, what was in the uh, processing business has now gone into co-packing and has offended all its former customers. And so they're looking for new outlets. Well, there's only two other companies in the country that do this kind of work. So, so that's, I mean, that's a great story. There's a lot of, uh, protection there. It's a, there's substantial barriers to entry and, 
it, it's a it's a big project, but but it's a great story. So when a project uh, goes bad, you mentioned uh, that you know projects do go bad. And you be kind of you kind of go down into the trenches with these organizations. You become their friends. Sometimes they're paying you instead of the banks because of, um you know because of the relationship you have with them. What types of things are you doing to to help them? How do you how will you help them weather that storm? Well, you know, we, we, we do a little bit of the, the business counseling. I, I, I'm not a marketing guy. I'm not a management guy. I'm finance. So, you know, we, we'll sit down and help with some projections and try and work things out. But uh, probably the major thing that we'll do is we're the patient lender in the deal. So we'll tell them, look, make sure you pay the bank because if you don't pay the bank, they're going to close you down and you can pay us later. Maybe you pay us interest only. We'll defer payments. Um, I've had situations where... A borrower had a, had a tough situation with a building. We actually bought into the building with them because the only way to get it refinanced was on our credit. And and so we've done some unique things like that to keep people in business and and, and get them through a tough time. Um, sometimes it's seasonal, cyclical. Um, sometimes there's a, a maybe a trauma in the business or the family that they've taken their eye off the ball a little bit. And, and so you want to try and help them get back on their feet. And and we can do that because we're not regulated. You know, I've got to report to a board of directors. Uh, I certainly have to report to SBA if it's an SBA loan. But when you're a subordinate lender, the, the business has to stay in business. You're not. You're seldom going to get paid by liquidating collateral, particularly if you're not willing to step up and take out the senior lender and control the collateral. Because now you're at the mercy of the senior lender. As I said earlier, lenders are not good sellers of assets. They just want to get as much of their money back as they can and, and wipe it away and get rid of it. Um, we tend to be more patient, more long-term uh, vision, and try and recover as much as we absolutely can, uh, even if it means we have to hold the asset and, and work with somebody in a creative way to get that space back into use. So a person who's looking to uh, finance some sort of opportunity thinks you know thinks that they should talk with you, what kind of things should they be thinking in their head right now before they come and sit at your desk? Well, I think the most important thing is a business plan. You know, okay. you, you just, and, and you know, I think people, when they see business plan, they envision this 50 page formal right. plan. Master's that, thesis. Right, exactly. <laughs> or, or worse yet, they'll get online and they'll find some canned thing that asks you questions. Right. And the good thing about that is at least they're asking pointed questions but it, it's not your plan, and it, it's a lot of boilerplate, and they're just dropping in the information that you've, you've filled into this uh, question. Um, it, it, you need to be thoughtful. You need to really consider what this is going to mean to your livelihood, your family, uh, the financial burden, the time burden. Does this make sense? And I think too often people don't approach it like that. They're not methodical. They, they, they're very... Um, you know, it's wishful thinking, they're dreamers, and and they just want some money so they can show you that they can be successful. And I think it's hard to say no sometimes because some of these people are great and, and you really develop affection for them. But the worst thing you can do is lend them money and watch them fail. And and so that rigor of a business plan is helpful. Now, you can have an existing business that's been doing something and maybe they're just buying another piece of equipment or maybe they're expanding their product line. And, and you don't necessarily need a formal business plan, but you do want them to think about what they're doing, do some projections, what's the likely sales, what's your margins gonna be, who are you gonna have to hire, are those skills out there, you know, just thinking about it and, and putting it on paper and making sure it's a good idea. I, 
I, I, we've met lots of people over the years and, and certainly the Small Business Development Center, you know, maybe that, that's a future guest for you to have. You sit down with them, you put them through that exercise and after a few months they come back and say, I, you know, I've decided to keep my day job. And, and you feel good about that because you probably saved them from financial ruin. Well, you were talking about um, some of the restaurants in the area that uh, you've, you helped get going. So I guess one of my questions would be, if you decided today just to eat dinner at a restaurant that you worked with, how many days could you go before you had to start over or seek somebody else? We, um, we've probably got about, I would think, 30 or 40. 40 in our portfolio. So you got, we, we got a month of eating with John Phelps. You could do a little yeah. John Phelps a month punch of card. That? Oh, man. <laughs> I feel like that's a picture book for your coffee table. <laughs> yeah, a month of eating with John Phelps. You know, you should talk to my wife. Can we go somewhere where it's not a client for once? <laughs> so, so we don't eat at a lot of uh, chain restaurants. Uh, nope. So it, it's, it's the locals and... Uh, we're downtown quite a bit, but we've got them throughout the city and in in other. Um, we've got a bunch of restaurants in the Chicago area and uh, Byron. We've done them, Freeport, uh, Galena. So we are, and that's that's a good a point. I mentioned Nauvoo earlier. Our SBA program we're statewide, um, and and we're obligated to try and service the state. Now we're a small CDC. A certified development company is the term that that SBA uses, and and I know I throw a, a lot of uh, acronyms around, but that's that's the government side of me. But, um, but we we tend to focus north of I eighty and west of Highway forty seven. But we do have banks and other relationships that will cause us to go into Chicago or downstate. So this uh, past month, we financed two Culvers in Southwest Chicago. I, uh, I, I definitely see an app, like a phone app, where you, you press on an area in the city, <laughs> and like now three things pop up, and you have you know, John Phelps rating. Yeah, like, John's <laughs> picks. <laughs> no, I, I don't do that, because you know, you're going to make one happy. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, John, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to meet with us. A, a lot, I think, of valuable information for folks out there who are looking to either start businesses or looking to expand their small businesses. Uh, thanks for being here. We'll we'll see it. I think Thank when we you. check inventory next time <laughs> at that local. I, I may go there right now. <laughs> there we go. All right, buddy. Thanks All for right, being thanks, here. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate it.